0: Some of them came back. Thanks for coming. I don't know about you, but I'm a bit prejudiced. I think she sings like a bird. I mean, one of them songbirds. And I always appreciate a song from the heart where Jesus Christ is praised. People say sometimes, uh, or at least I ask myself sometimes when I come to a meeting like this, what is is my real goal? What is it I really think I can do in one day? Well, I realize you give me 40 minutes in the morning and you give me 40 minutes at night, but what am I really going to do for you? And I know you're going to go out of here and say nothing, absolutely nothing. No, you won't do that, will you? But I always tell people that when I come in in a situation like this, there's two things that I want to do. I want to be a cheerleader. You know what a cheerleader does? It kind of, I don't know, they kind of build up your enthusiasm. I don't go to many ball games, and, but I see a few of them once in a while. I remember what it was like in high school. You know, they kind of get you going, don't they? And I want to be a cheerleader. But I also want to be a compass. A compass shows you the direction you should go. So I want to be a little bit of both for you this weekend. I want to be a cheerleader. I want you to go away enthused about the fact that you're a Christian. I don't want you to go out of this door, out of these doors thinking that, that this Christianity business is a drag. I want you to feel like there's something to be excited about. I'm not in the, what we call the uh, enthusiastic, uh, um, I guess I could use the charismatic term kind of person, but actually I've been accused a little of that. Because I believe if we really enjoy something, we can get excited about it. And I think it's good to get excited. If you want to say amen once in a while, don't bother me. Because we should be able to be excited. So I want to be a cheerleader. And I want to be a compass. Now, we've been hearing these songs and we've been remembering the Lord. And we've been reminding ourselves of what we have in Christ. And I always think of that little chorus that it's a grand thing to be saved. It's a grand thing to be saved and to know it too and to show it too. It's a grand thing to be saved. Can you say amen to that? Amen. amen. Okay. So, but we're looking at the fact that in Christianity today, and I'm using that term in its broadest sense, there's a lot of confusion. And unless you yourself take some responsibility for trying to sort out, in some fashion, the way in which you want to please the Lord, you're going to be confused. and You're going to wonder what is right, and some of our young people have kind of thrown up their hands. Now, we've got two kinds of young people today. I've got some very energetic young people that, are, that I'm around, and they want to do all apologetics. You, I have to use that term so that you know I've been reading my books. But you, you know what apologetics are. Well, you're, you're defending the gospel. And I know Paul says that he was set for the defense of the gospel. So I can't say that's wrong to, to be involved in apologetics, but I really think you misunderstand what Paul was saying when he said he was set for the defense of the gospel, because the gospel Paul preached, he was really defending the resurrection. He was defending the fact that he he served a living God, and that he had been serving a dead religion, and now he was serving a living Lord, and that Christ had been raised from the dead. And he was using the Old Testament scriptures to prove that Christ had been raised from the dead, and as you go through the Acts of the Apostles, the The thing that just strikes you is how that they didn't spend so much time on hell. They spent some time on judgment, of course. They didn't spend so much time on sin, though they spent a lot of time on turning from idolatry. But they didn't spend the time on the major sins we spend time on today. They spent time on the fact that here was the Lord, and he had been raised from the dead, and people that didn't worship him were wrong. He defended the gospel. But I tell young people, you can study all the books that are out there on defending the gospel, and you can read More Than a Carpenter, and you can read, I guess I should know all the titles, you can read all of them. But you know, our job, I am convinced, isn't so much to defend the gospel in the way apologetics are defending it as it is to present it. I am firmly convinced that if we present the gospel, that faith will come by hearing and hearing by the word of God and God can defend his own character. I really believe that. Now, I believe that when people ask you honest questions, you should have honest answers. And I believe, and I tell you young people this honestly, I believe there's a a three-letter honest answer you can give a lot of times and it doesn't hurt. It's just simply, I don't know. I don't know. And then you can ask, but does it really matter? You can ask, does it really matter? But I sit down with people quite frequently when I'm working with them in the gospel. One man in particular, I did this to, and I thought I would greatly offend him. He was uh, teaching a lot of art classes having to do with Christianity, and I asked him. I said, "Now." have you ever read the book that all this is based on? He'd been teaching for years, chairman of the department. Have you ever read the book that all this was based on? He said, uh, no. I said, could you be a lawyer without reading the Constitution? Kind of looked at me. I said, how can you be a professor of art, architecture, Renaissance art, art iconography, art architecture, religious architecture, and not have read the book it's based on. And he just hung his head. We started studying the Bible, and about uh, three days into it, he uh, told me, he says, you know, we were studying John 3 and verse 36. I said, He that believeth on the Son hath everlasting life, and he that believeth not the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abideth on him. And I said, Art, you're not a... His, his, his name was Art, Teaching Art, if that confuses you. I said, Art, uh, you read that verse, and I said, you're, you're an intelligent man. You know there's an equal sign in that verse. If you believe on the sun, it equals having everlasting life. Do you have everlasting life? And he just looked at me. I said, if you can't say you have everlasting life, don't tell me you believed on the sun. Because they go together. Whatever believing on the sun means, you ain't done it if you can't say you have everlasting life. And I pretty much put it to him that way, and I thought I had offended him. And just before he left on that session, he turned around to me and he wheeled around and he said, Bruce, I have everlasting life. He took me by surprise. A week later we got together and I thought that that conversation would get dropped. And he started out right where we had left off and he said, Bruce, you remember what I told you last week? I said, I certainly do. He says, I've never told anybody that before. These are not the kind of things we talked about in our family. That was a private matter, but he says, I talked to you about things that I've never talked to other people about, but he says, things that used to bother me in my life are not bothering me anymore. Wasn't that good? He that believeth on the Son, it equals having everlasting life. But what I had done is I told him he needed to read the document. And I'm firmly convinced that people can read the document and never have me tell them a thing about it, and they can come to know Christ. I'm firmly, I firmly believe that. Now, I encourage them to read in the New Testament. I encourage them to read John's Gospel. But I am absolutely convinced that I can give it to them and let them start in Genesis, and if they'll keep at it, they're going to find Christ. You know why I'm convinced of that? Because this isn't our work. It's the work of the Holy Spirit. And so I tell people... Be more concerned about presenting the gospel than you are about defending the gospel. But make sure you know what the gospel is. Make sure you know what the gospel is. Because we're reading, are we not, from Acts chapter 2. They that gladly received his word were baptized, and the same day there was added unto them about 3,000 souls, and they continued steadfastly in the, what, apostles' doctrine and in fellowship. And in breaking of bread and in prayers. So, the great commission in Matthew 28 is to make the disciples, to baptize them, and to teach them all things. It appears that they carried that out, they taught them the doctrines that they needed to know. I am convinced that in Acts chapter 2 and verse 41, when it talks about teaching them the apostles doctrine, while I'm making a broad application with regard to that statement, I'm convinced that the apostles doctrine there had to do with the fact that Christ had been raised from the dead. And I'm convinced that that's what they were defending, that's what they were explaining, that the Old Testament predicted it, the New Testament had witnesses to the resurrection and paul had seen him well later on would see the the resurrected lord but i think peter in that passage was defending the truth of the resurrection that's what my, my personal feeling is but we can certainly go beyond that with the doctrine of the resurrection now my problem today is that there's a lot of doctrines that we need to understand and i'm not sure that we do And when I was 20 years old, I understood them all. When I'm now a little older than that, I'm not sure I understand them quite as well as I used to. One of the doctrines I'm not sure that I understand is the doctrine of who a Christian really is. Oh, you're supposed to know that? Yes, I'm supposed to know that, right? I'm supposed to know who a Christian really is because the issue that I'm going to deal with is the issue of separation and I'm supposed to separate from unbelievers, but who's an unbeliever today? And who's a believer today? Now, I mentioned this morning that I work with a lot of people who tell me that they don't know when they were saved. And I have never been one who believes that you have to be able to go back and put a mark on the calendar because... If you were as occupied with putting a mark on the calendar as some people are, I would be wondering if you had been concerned about the fact that you were a sinner in need of a Savior. I can put a mark on the calendar. You know why I can put a mark on the calendar? Because I was saved two days after President Kennedy was assassinated. And I can go back in the history books and I find out President Kennedy was assassinated on November 22nd. So I was saved on November 24th. But if I didn't have that marker, I would remember it. Because it was, for me, a traumatic experience. It was a thrilling experience, but it was a traumatic experience. But I don't know that I would remember the date. If you asked me the date I was baptized, I remember being baptized. But I'd have to do a little work to figure out the date. I think I could do it, but I'd have to do a little work to figure out the date. But folks, I do not understand. I'm talking about the doctrine of salvation now. I do not understand how we can preach about salvation without preaching the must of John chapter 3. Well, there's actually two in John chapter 3, but there's one in particular that we need to spend a little time on. Ye must be born again. Now, let me ask you a question. What does M-U-S-T mean? I've got a place where I go. I, I know you're from Claremont. You're not going to respond to me. I, I just know that. I, I should have you raise your hands. But, but I, I've got a little place I go, and there's a 12-year-old girl who doesn't know better. And every time I say, what does M-U-S-T mean, this little 12-year-old girl says, it means must. <laughs> does that mean anything to you? Must means must. And I know it means that it's an absolute necessity, but she's got a hold of it because every time I go there, I pull it on them, and repetition does do some good. And so I'll say, what does must mean? She says, must? Now, the Bible says you must be born again, right? And if the Bible says you must be born again, you must be born again. But people tell me I wasn't there at my first birth, and I don't remember it. What makes you think i got to remember my second birth? I like a, a, a song Johnny Cash sings. He says, people say you can't know. And I don't know all the lyrics that he goes through. He says, you can't know. But he says, I was there when it happened. So I guess I ought to know. I was too. I was there when it happened. So I guess I ought to know. Now the reason I raise that question is because if we're trying to get to this next doctrine that I want to deal with, the doctrine of light versus darkness, the doctrine of separation, we've got to know who's light and who's dark, don't we? And today, I talk to a lot of people who haven't got a clue as to what it means to be saved and Acts 4 and 12 says, we must be saved. What does must mean? Must. Oh, good. Must means must. We must be saved, right? But the terms aren't used. Now, are the people saved? They say they're followers of Jesus. Most of them that I'm talking to have been raised in denominational systems where they were baptized as infants, confirmed into the faith later on, and then at some point they say that they are, became sure they were saved, and it's not clear as to whether they really have a new birth experience or not. Do you have that problem around here? When you talk to people, you say, I just don't know. Because you see, we've got this dichotomy between the doctrine of faith by grace and the doctrine of good works. And we say in our preaching that salvation is by grace through faith and it's not of works lest any man should boast. And then we go on after we make that statement in the early part of our meeting, we go on and tell everybody about the good works they should be doing. Now you're sitting there as an unsaved person, right? And you're listening to us say, well, salvation is by grace through faith. And then you hear us say, but I don't think that person's saved because they don't walk it. What message are we presenting? Are we confusing people at all with with that? Because both are true in a sense, aren't they? Can people be saved that aren't walking it? Yeah. Can people be walking it and not be saved? I think they can. Now, my problem is that, and I'm not God, I don't sit on the throne, I don't see hearts, but my problem is that I talk to a lot of people today who are followers of Jesus, who can't give me a how, a when, and a where, who don't know when they were born again, who can't really tell me that they were convicted and converted, but they say that they are believers in Christ, and if I were basing my relationship with them on their lives, their lives would be better than many of the people that got the doctrine right. That's a shame to have to say that, but that's true. They're happier. They're more concerned about moral issues. They keep their lives cleaner. They help the poor. They do the things right, but they haven't got a clue when it comes to the doctrines of the gospel. So that's why I say today I get confused. Today, when we preach the gospel, we have some people who get very academic in the preaching of the gospel. And they will tell you that God chooses some people to be saved. I'll tell you that. And there are others who will say, oh, no, God doesn't choose anybody to be saved. He, in fact, gives us free will. And it's only those who choose Christ that are saved. And I'm guessing I just divided this congregation down the middle. I just divided this congregation down the middle. Who's right Well, God's right, but can we understand the tension between those two points of view? Can we understand what the two points of view are? Now, I'm going to tell you right up front that I believe in free will. Sort of. (laughs) Sort of. Because I don't believe any of us have a totally free will. I believe left to ourselves, we would all sin and turn away from God. I believe that's the way we're made. I think our tendency is to, is to be unbelievers. So do we have a free will? Well, we have the ability. When the Holy Spirit comes in and tells us about Christ, to accept it. We have that ability. But it runs contrary to the natural man in us. So whether you call that free will or not, I don't know, but I do know this. When I preach the gospel, I think I make a difference. And I get very upset when somebody presents in a gospel meeting the truth. They say that it's the truth that some people will never be saved because they were not part of the elect. The elect is the church. And when you go back to Ephesians chapter 1, it's misunderstood. Let's just read it together. This isn't the only verse, but this is one of the verses we need to understand on this issue. Ephesians 1 and verse 3 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ. It's talking to Christians. According as he hath chosen us or elected us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestinated the chosen, having predestinated us unto. "...the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to Himself according to the good pleasure of His will." Now, what does it mean when He says that He hath chosen us in Him? We read that, that He has chosen us to be placed in Him. That's what it says. In the Ephesian epistle, and this goes back to things I was saying this morning... We have to understand the context of the epistle. And one of the basic things you do when you study your Bible is you study in the context. We tell people there are three things that sell real estate. Three principles, right? Location. 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 Well, there's three things that you look at in studying the Bible. Context. 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 Context of the chapter. Context of the book. Context of the message of the Bible as a whole, right? We, we study it in its context. Now, if you study this in its context, the whole context of Ephesians is that God has a chosen people, and that chosen people is no longer the Jew, and it's not the Gentile. But he has taken the two, as I mentioned this morning, and he's made one new thing out of the two. And the chosen people is the church. And when you come to Ephesians and you see that little preposition in, that's a positional statement, not a conditional statement. Unconditional statement is one that happens if you meet certain requirements. A positional statement is what we have in Christ by virtue of believing in him. This is a position Chosen in Christ, not chosen to be placed in Christ. Now, let me explain so you got it, because on this, this is extremely important, folks. Notice, he's not saying that we're chosen in Adam. If we were chosen in Adam, that would be by our natural birth, right? Notice he's not saying we're chosen in Abraham. If we were chosen in Abraham, it would be the Jews that are chosen, right? You getting this? We're chosen in him, in Christ. It's Christians that are chosen. This passage does not tell you what makes a Christian. This passage tells you that if you're a Christian, you are a part of God's chosen people. These are things that we have to sort out. Now, having said that, I can't explain to you why when I walk into a meeting and begin to hold meetings that I see people in the first meeting oftentimes and I can say, that person's going to come to Christ. They have a hunger and a thirst after righteousness. And I can look at other people and I can say they didn't hear a thing I said tonight. I can't explain Why some come to faith and why some do not. I can't explain that. But I'm a firm believer in the fact that God wants all to be saved. And I preach from that standpoint. I hope we're really not divided on that issue here. I could go into the whole gamut of truth associated with this. I don't want to. I just want you to be assured of the fact that God had a plan before Adam ever sinned. He had a plan that would allow us to be his chosen people in Christ. And we have to believe in Christ to become a part of that chosen people. And he's predestinated us who are his chosen, his elect people. He's predestinated us to be with him in heaven and to be like his son, to be heirs and joint heirs. We got all of that. That was just like people that find out that, they're pregnant. I, I, I'm from the old school. My wife was pregnant, but you young people, you're pregnant, so okay, I go along with that. And when you find out you're pregnant, what do you do? You go get these tests run, and you find out, I got a boy, or I got a girl, or I got a boy and a girl, or whatever it is, and then you set up a room for that particular child that's going to come into the world. You got a destination for a child, right? And because that child is coming... You make sure you're prepared for it. God prepared for us before the foundation of the world. He set up the room and he says, In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. i go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there ye may be also. Isn't that nice? He's prepared that place for us. And he did it for me long before I was ever saved. (laughs) Christ died for me 2,000 years ago. And I didn't get born until just somewhat recently in the realm of human history. And, uh, And yet he had known with his foreknowledge that I would be part of the elect. But he didn't cause me to believe, okay? but He sure wanted me to. And He sent the Holy Spirit to convince me and to convert me. And the people that resist the convicting, converting power of the Holy Spirit are the people that are left out of this blessing. They believe not in the only begotten Son of God. Now, I've raised that issue because One of the principles that we have to be concerned about is a principle that starts in Genesis chapter 1. In Genesis chapter 1, as we look at the story of creation, I suppose we could say that the very first principle is that God was in the beginning. Okay, We don't know how. We don't know where He came from. We know He was eternal. It doesn't We can't understand it. We have to accept it by faith, right? But God was in the beginning. And we find out that He was the Creator. Now, later on, we find out that the Lord Himself was the Creator. The Holy Spirit was the Creator. (laughs) There's no conflict in that in my mind. We won't spend a lot of time on the doctrine of the Trinity tonight, but there's no conflict in that. But He says... The Spirit of God, verse 2, well, the earth was without form and void. Darkness was upon the face of the deep. The Spirit of God moved upon the face of the darkness, and God said. Now, I would say that the second principle I see in Genesis 1 is the link between the Spirit of God and the Word of God. If you come to Ephesians 6, Paul tells us that we're to take the sword of the Spirit, what? What? which is what? The Word of God. There's always a link between the two. And that's why when we read the Word, the Spirit will use the Word to convict and to convert sinners and to convict and to convert even those of us that are saved sometimes. Okay? So we have that Spirit of God moved and God said, let there be light. And there was light. God saw the light that it was good, and here it is. Here's the principle God divided the light from the darkness, right? There's a division between light and darkness. Now we know that darkness represents the domain of Satan, it's confusion. Light represents Christ and his domain. That's understanding, that's purity, that's all that's good. When we get to heaven, I don't know about you, but there's one problem I have about the description of heaven. And it just bothers me to no end. There's no night there. How am I going to sleep? But the Bible says there's no darkness. There's no night there. Now, whether that's symbolic, whether that's real, whether that's the real deal, I don't know. But anyway, there is good, there is evil, there is light there is darkness. So we come over and carry this doctrine over into the New Testament. Let the Old Testament be our illustration and the New Testament be our explanation. And as we come to 2 Corinthians 6, we're going to read a verse that I don't know when I've heard read publicly in the last 10 years. So I'm going to read it publicly here. Verse 11 says, O ye Corinthians, our mouth is open unto you, our heart is enlarged. Yet ye are not straightening in us, but ye are straightened in your own bowels. Now for a recompense in the same I speak as unto my children, be ye also enlarged. But here it is. Be ye not unequally yoked together with unbelievers. Now, many of you have newer translations. Different translations, and the unequal is not in there, right? It just says be not yoked. Is there anybody here that's reading a translation that says that? All of yours say, be not unequally yoked. Well, that's good. But but the truth of the matter is, I don't think the word unequal is really there, it's implied. Okay? Be not unequally yoked together with unbelievers, for what fellowship hath righteousness with unrighteousness? What communion hath light with darkness? What conquered hath Christ with Belial? Or what part hath he that believeth with an infidel? And what agreement hath the temple of God with idols? For ye are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will dwell in them and walk in them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Here it is. Wherefore, come out from among them, and be ye separate, saith the Lord, and touch not the unclean thing, and I will receive you, and will be a father unto you. Now he's already our father. This means we will allow him to father us. That's what I think the, the idea is. I will be a father unto you, and ye shall be my sons and daughters, saith the Lord God Almighty. In other words, in a practical way, we'll enjoy the, 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 the ability of God to be the father he wants to be. How can we do that? Only one way. Pure and simple, separate from unbelievers. But I just ask the question, who's an unbeliever today? Do you know? And this is an issue that I think that we all have to deal with in some fashion. I've got an article I want to read to you about what a Christian is, if I can find it here. It's a good article. I know it's a good article because you can find it on my website and for those of you that don't know I have a website and if you're interested in it I'll give you the the address or you can talk to one of my friends who's got it here Kevin or Jason and uh, get it Um, every Monday I try to distribute an email meditation if you're interested in that you're welcome to either read it on site or have it emailed to you or if you've got Facebook I put it on that Um, Those things are, I make those things available, but this article is on the website, so you don't have to take notes. You can go to the website, you can copy it off. Very good article. I know it's a very good article because I wrote it. Now, when I wrote this, I'm being facetious, I hope you understand. (laughs) Today we hear that the problems in Kosovo, as well as the current war on terrorism, are because... Of a conflict between Christians and Muslims. In Littleton, Colorado a girl is shot because she is a Christian. Sometimes we hear of real Christians or born-again Christians. You've asked a question, I had a question that I'm answering here, you've asked a question that bothers many since the term means different things to different people. There are three references to Christians in the New Testament. These are Acts 11 and verse 26, where King Agrippa, I'm sorry, the disciples were called Christians first at Antioch. And then we go to Acts 26, verse 28, where Paul is speaking to King Agrippa. Then Agrippa said unto Paul, almost thou persuadest me to be a Christian. (coughs) And then we go to 1 Peter chapter 4 and verse 16. Yet, if any man suffer as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God on this behalf. The normal Bible dictionary definition of a Christian is one who follows Christ. A secular dictionary may have as a definition one who follows the teachings of Christ, but it will also indicate that a Christian is a moral person or a person having the qualities of Jesus. In other words, Most people consider a Christian to be a person who lives a certain lifestyle because of his or her belief in the teachings of the Lord Jesus. Now let's see how the Bible defines a Christian. In Acts 11, verse 26, the term was used by non-Christians to identify the believers in Christ. Notice in verse 21 that a good number believed and turned to the Lord. The Christians had been called Nazarenes by the Jews in Acts 24 and verse 5, because the Jews had originally considered believers in Christ to be a sect of the Hebrew religion. In Acts 26 and verse 28, King Agrippa uses the term after Paul tells him how he came to trust in the Lord Jesus on the Damascus Road, thus Paul has explained how he became a Christian. And now Paul has said in verse 18 that his commission is to open their eyes or understanding in order to turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those that are sanctified or who are set apart as special by faith in the Lord Jesus. There is no doubt that King Agrippa understood that Paul was trying to persuade him to trust in Christ and so that he too could be enlightened, freed from the power of Satan, forgiven. Sanctified or set apart by faith in the Lord Jesus. Peter definitely uses the term as identifying Christians with the name of Christ. The name of Christ has to do with his character, his reputation, and his authority. In summary, being a Christian is not a lifestyle as much as it is a relationship. Formed by trust. A Christian has received Christ as his or her personal savior by trusting him. A Christian is born again since one can't be a Christian without the new birth. A real Christian is one who really trusts in the person of Christ and who has had that effect and has had that effect his or her lifestyle, in contrast to one who casually says that he or she believes in the Lord Jesus with no conviction about what that means. No ceremony makes a Christian though Christians believe in ceremonies such as baptism and the Lord's Supper, one can't join a group to become a Christian, though Christians do join together for the purpose of worship, teaching, prayer, and fellowship, a Christian is a follower of Christ because he or she has the utmost confidence or faith in Christ and thus knows that his or her sins are forgiven and that he or she has eternal life. Now today, We talk in the public media about the Christian right. Don't we? Is the Christian right something that we should be associating ourselves with? There are two issues that the Christian right uses to get us to associate with them. I'm not gonna mention them, you know what they are. I'm not here to deal with those issues. I'm here to tell you that those issues are issues we're all concerned about, but those issues have gotten us to accept organizations as Christians who do not preach that you must be born again, that do not preach that you can know you have eternal life, who do not preach that you have faith in Christ to be right with God. Some of the organizations, if I were to take you to their believings, are basically New Age organizations. They call themselves Christians. But we have amalgamated with those people and we have identified ourselves with those people because of the um, monstrosity of the sins. But we single out We get upset with the Westboro Baptist Church because they single out specific sins and we call them sin killers. But in a sense, we're doing the same thing because we'll deal with some of these sins and we don't deal with the corresponding sins that are acceptable amongst us. Now, folks, I don't have an answer for this, but I know the Bible says that I'm to separate from unbelievers. And when I take a stand... I should take that stand with the Lord, not with people who are tagged as Christians, but who do not believe the basic doctrines of the gospel. I believe that strongly, and I think we need to be very careful in our association with what's called the Christian right. Oh, you can crucify me at the door, I get to go home tomorrow. But I'm just telling you this because I want to be a little compass. Look, I'm going to be very plain. When you take a stand with the Republicans, the Democrats won't believe you. When you take a stand with the Democrats, the Republicans won't believe you, and they both need to be saved. Take your stand with the Lord. Okay? Take your stand on issues. Don't associate with name-calling and tags. Don't do that. Now, having said that, we come back to this issue of separating light from darkness. And generally, I hear people say, yes, a believer should not marry an unbeliever. I can tell you of one situation we ran into just recently or heard about just recently where the young man said he was a believer until he got married. Then he said, I never believed any of that. Should the young lady have been able to figure that out? I don't know. I have parents who tell me that they believe in evangelistic, no, dating evangelism. Do you know what that is? Dating evangelism. You date an unbeliever and you convert him to Christ. Can I suggest that maybe that's not a good idea? can i be a little stronger and tell you that you're playing with fire okay what about our business relationships we used to be concerned about separating from unbelievers in business relationships and so i would talk to farmers i at one time i was practicing as a cpa we always practiced we never got it right and so um, I was practicing as a CPA and I'd have a farmer come in and he would be pra- he would be farming by himself and he'd want to go into partnership. Well the person he wanted to go into partnership with was usually somebody who was either a questionable un- a believer or an unbeliever. But he'd say, "Well, can't we incorporate and get around this because it's only a partnership that creates a problem, right?" If we incorporate, then we don't have the problem. Same operation, different legal form, right? Are are we being a bit technical in order to avoid the issue? Do you understand what I'm saying? What is an unequal yoke? Okay, well, that's been a problem that I've had for years. What is an unequal yoke? Because I'm a firm believer in the fact that we need to mingle with the world. I'm a firm believer in the fact that we are in the world. We're not of the world. The world should know we're not of the world. But that we have to be out there and even make friends in the world. But listen, it's an unequal yoke whenever you give up a principle, a godly principle, in order to maintain the relationship. Can I, t- can I give you an example? I've had people say, well, you women, because you women are the ones who do this, you women should not have coffee with your unsaved neighbors. Now, I'm all for you having coffee with your unsaved neighbors so long as you don't take the texts off the wall and put the Bibles away when they come. If you can be what you are normally when they come, if you can be all that you are for Christ when they come, fine. If you you normally give thanks for your lunch, give thanks for your lunch. You don't have to be... um, obtrusive, you don't have to be uh, preachy, you just have to be a Christian. But the moment in order to maintain that relationship, you start changing the way you act to conform to what you know is wrong in order to maintain the relationship, you're in an unequal yoke. I don't know how far it goes. I, I know we used to think that you were never in an unequal yoke when you were working for a corporation but you could be in an unequal yoke if you were in a partnership. I worked for a corporation and I look back at it and I believe I was in an unequal yoke from the day I walked through that door because I was having to do things that were against my conscience from the day one and I prayed about it and the Lord graciously removed me from that situation. I made a mistake as far as I was concerned when I took that job. Now I realize that This matter of separating light from darkness is difficult in our day. I'm not going to sit here and tell you I know just exactly where you should draw the line, but I think you should be praying about it. Because if you want to be all you can be for God, this is here. Be not unequally yoked together with unbelievers. Don't let unbelievers make decisions for you that you wouldn't make if you weren't in that relationship. And remember that when the children of Israel were delivered from Egypt, there was a mixed multitude that came out with them. I think you'll read about that maybe in Exodus 12 or so. A mixed multitude came with them. Who was the mixed multitude? Well, it appears to me that while in Egypt, the, the Jews were marrying Egyptians. Uh, it may have been men marrying women, women marrying men, but they were marrying Egyptians. They likely had no business doing it. I don't think there was any problem with a Jew marrying an Egyptian who was a convert to Judaism. But it's quite clear that that wasn't the case. And so when you get to, I think it's Numbers 11, it was that mixed multitude that began lusting after flesh. They were never dedicated to the things of Christ. And I will tell you this, that when you, you might think I'm being hard on you, but I will tell you that if you don't follow this principle. Satan's going to be hard on you, and life is going to get tough. It's not me. It's Satan that'll do it. Some have said when you marry somebody who is an unbeliever, and you're a believer, and you're truly a believer, not just playing at it, but you're truly a believer, then you've got Satan as your father-in-law. It's kind of a damaging thing, you know? I will confess to you that the more I've read this passage, the harder it is to know how to practically apply it in our day. But my question, and the question I use, is, can I be all that I want to be for Christ in this relationship? And if I can't, get out of it. It doesn't say change the other person. It says get out of it. Wherefore, come out from among them, and be ye separate. Why? Because we are God's chosen people. We are holy. That doesn't mean we're sinless. It means that we are set apart for God. We are his temple. And the unbeliever has nothing to do with that. And today, when we begin to study the gospel and the doctrines of the gospel, it gets so confusing because we've got the reform movement. Are they Christians? We've got the people who believe in dominion theology. Are they Christians? We've got the covenant theology people. Are they Christians? We've got the people who... I could go on and on, and give you the list. Every time I turn around, there's a new list. There's the hyper-dispensationalists. There's the amillennialists, and most of those groups that I've mentioned already fall into that category. And in every case, it leaves you confused. You'd like to believe that the people are saved and just misguided as to their teaching, following salvation. But if they're misguided as to their teaching, following salvation, the Holy Spirit doesn't lead us down the path to destruction. Why don't they get enlightened? Or why don't we get enlightened? Why? Now, I'm going to tell you where the problem is. You've got to to give me five minutes because I know you're going to want to just shoot me out of the cannon when I get out of here. But I've got to tell you where the problem is. We have become a people who believe you have to be educated to, to understand the Word of God. Did you hear me? We believe that our teachers should have a theological degree. So that's who we're looking for, for theological degrees. Now, my father-in-law had a third grade education, and he knew more about theology than some of the people I talked to with theology degrees. I believe the Holy Spirit can teach the simple. I really believe that. They may not be able to say all the right words, but I believe that they can be taught, they can be mature in spiritual things. But we, who are academic people, and I've been there, and I like the academic life, I really do. If I wasn't preaching the gospel, I'd still want to be teaching uh, students how to put little numbers in little boxes, accounting. But you see, if you're in the academic environment, have you ever heard about this little thing called publish or perish? Well, you see, you've got to come up with something new in order to have a publication. And you've got to have a publication in order to get an advancement from assistant professor to associate professor, from associate professor to full professor. When you start out as an assistant professor, you have no tenure, and you've got to get these publications in order to get tenure. Now, how are you going to get publications? Well, you've got to find something to write about. And it's got to be some new thing, right? I mean, if it's in science, there may be some new things you can write about, some new new uh, tests you can run, some, some new experiments, some new ideas you can pursue, or you can perhaps prove that the theory of relativity really never did work and get your publication. I, I don't know. I don't understand those things, but I'm just passing them along. But when you get an accreditation, From the accrediting institutions, your professors have to be publishing professors. Now, I'm going to tell you something. If you're going to publish new stuff in theology, you're going to be publishing stuff that doesn't come from the Bible. It's the old stuff that we need to know. I uh, had a professor once who was explaining how this worked, and I was in a cost accounting class, and he said... uh, He says, we have this discussion in in finance versus accounting as to whether depreciation is a source of funds. Now, if you haven't taken accounting or finance, don't worry about it. Just understand that this was a controversy. Uh, It was just simply a matter of semantics, the way you looked at something for a particular purpose, and I knew that. But he said, look at this. He said, this guy says it was a source of funds, and he got it published in a rather uh, prestigious journal. And he said, this guy, he said it was not a source of funds, and he got it published in a rather prestigious journal. And the first guy, he came back and told us why the first guy was wrong, and he got it published in a rather prestigious journal. And it was All semantics from the beginning, a worthless argument as far as I was concerned. And he said, look, these guys each got three publications on their resume. Look at that. Are you following me? Hey, that goes on in religious circles too. And so we go to these schools of theology and everybody's looking for the new angle. And folks, we don't need the new angle. We just need to know that Christ died for sinners and that the most important thing in life is to be prepared for eternity. And we need to be praising God. And you can be simple to do that. Is that okay? Let's pray. Lord, we do thank Thee today for Thy love, for Thy salvation. We do thank Thee for the Bible. And we thank Thee that when we really study it, the basic message is pretty simple. Trust me and you'll live. Reject me and you'll die. And Lord, we're thankful today that we can come together and without understanding everything that everyone has told us, we can trust the Lord Jesus Christ. And Lord, we've trusted Him for many years. He's never failed us yet. And we're going to be able to spend an eternity with Him in a place where there is no night, where He's the light of that place. We thank Thee for Him. We thank Thee that we can go away from here rejoicing in our sins forgiven. We remember the words of that song. Was it for me, for me alone, the Savior left his glorious throne? The dazzling splendors of the sky, was it for me he came to die? And the chorus is, it was for me, yes, all for me. O oh, love of God, so great, so free. O oh, wondrous love, I'll shout and sing. He died for me, my Lord, the King. And, oh God, we just thank thee for the truth of that chorus, As we go away rejoicing, giving thee thanks in our Savior's name. Amen.